I'm Christina Torres, producer of Just the Right Book podcast. Last week, we had the distinct pleasure of having Mark Salter, longtime aide, speechwriter, and close friend of Senator John McCain on our podcast. Mark sat down with Roxanne just days before Senator McCain's passing to discuss his final memoir, co-written by Salter, The Restless Wave, Good Times, Just Causes, Great Fights, and Other Appreciations. Listening to the tributes to Senator John McCain, we are reminded of the ability to rise above differences and work for common ideals that we share as Americans. It is inspiring to be reminded of how united we can be and how our leaders can come together for the common good of the country. Senator McCain recorded the last chapter of his book earlier this year, and all of us at Just the Right Book thought the finest tribute would be to honor the true American patriot in his own words. I was rootless for more than half of my 81 years, beginning with my itinerant childhood. My father's Navy career required us to move constantly, just as my grandfather's service had disrupted his childhood. My father was born in Council Bluffs, Iowa, not because his family resided there or had some connection to the town, but because his parents were moving to the West Coast at the time, and he arrived on the way. I lost track of how many places we lived, how many schools I had attended. The actual moving, of course, was undertaken by my capable, adventurous mother, hauling three kids across country, detouring here and there to visit some natural wonder or cultural attraction. Eventually, my parents sent me to boarding school, Episcopal High School in Alexandria, Virginia, so that I could receive my secondary education and have the same circle of friends in one location for longer than a year. We didn't see my father for long stretches during his deployments. He was gone almost all of World War II and at sea for much of the Korean War, serving as an executive officer on a cruiser. We spent time together when he had shore duty. Even then, he was at work most of the time, including weekends and holidays. In the summers, when he was stateside, he would take us to the McCain family estate in the Mississippi Delta a cotton plantation purchased in 1851 by my great-great-grandfather, William Alexander McCain, and named for the local area Teoc. My great-uncle Joe, my grandfather's younger brother, ran Teoc back then. It was a big place, a couple of thousand acres, with a comfortable but modest home that had replaced a more impressive manor house lost to a fire generations before, a company store with a gasoline pump, a cotton gin, and tenant farmers descended from the slaves who had been held in bondage by my ancestors and taken the name McCain. I hunted, fished, and rode horses there and enjoyed time with my father and my teasing, funny Uncle Joe. Those are cherished memories, but my connection to the place was fleeting and many summers and years of my childhood were spent entirely without my father. We learned to live with and respect his absences. My own Navy career meant more of the same, frequent moves and extended absences from my family and country. I didn't mind the life, really, at least not when I was single and could find fun and adventure in any temporary residence. But I knew how difficult my professional transience would be on my first wife, Carol, and our children. Until I remarried, left the Navy, and moved to Cindy's home, Arizona, The only time I lived in the same place longer than a year was an unexpectedly lengthy stay in a foreign country 
that wouldn't let me leave and preferred I'd never come. Among the few advantages of my five and a half years in Hanoi was that Carol and the kids could live in one place, Orange Park, Florida, the entire time I was gone. I think the experience of my wandering youth is one of the reasons I've always been restless. My curiosity and eagerness for new sights and experiences I likely got from my indefatigable mother. I didn't regret not having a hometown. Before I moved to Arizona, whenever I was asked where I was from, I just answered, all around, or the States. And I felt not the least bit sorry that I couldn't be more specific. But something changed in the years after I left the Navy— I began to appreciate the comfort and solace that could be found in belonging to a place smaller and more intimate than an entire country. Cindy and I decided we would raise our family in Arizona, and I would commute to Washington. Given Congress a short work week, that usually meant I could leave Washington on Thursday night or Friday morning and return Monday afternoon, and regular recesses would allow me to spend weeks at home. Of course, there were weekends and recess periods when I couldn't be in Arizona, when Congress had to work into the weekend, or when I campaigned for Republican candidates in other states. My travel abroad as a member of the Armed Services Committee consumed many recess periods as well. But still, I've been able to spend more time with my family in the same home than I had ever thought would be possible. In my first year in Congress, I had a meeting with members of the Arizona Farm Bureau. After an hour spent discussing issues theretofore unfamiliar to me, I mentioned a matter Cindy and I had recently started discussing. We were living in a small house in Mesa we had recently acquired so I would meet my district's residency requirements. We didn't have any children yet, but we were planning to, and contemplating finding a place in the northern part of the state where our family could spend time together on weekends and holidays. Say, if any of you know of a place that's for sale up north that's on water, I added as we were exchanging goodbyes, let me know. My wife and I might be interested in it. As everyone knows, water is scarce in Arizona, and finding property for a reasonable price that's near any isn't an easy assignment. But some months later, I received a call from the head of the Farm Bureau. He had heard of a place for sale near Cottonwood. It's on Oak Creek, he informed me you might want to take a look at it. I called Cindy and she drove the 120 miles from Mesa to the spot in Yavapai County near Cornville, Arizona, where a winding, bumpy dirt road takes you down a steep hill to an oasis. Mormon pioneers were settled in the Salt Lake Valley in 1847, not long after the U.S. claimed the Utah Territory after the war with Mexico. Brigham Young was declared president of the Mormon Church and in that capacity, he dispatched missionaries to other parts of the Southwest, newly acquired from our defeated foe. Mormons founded communities in all parts of Arizona, including quite a few small towns in high, beautiful, desolate country in the northern part of the state. Towns like Eager, St. John's, and Snowflake. Many hardy souls stake claims in even more isolated locations if there were reliable water sources, including land along a horseshoe bend of Oak Creek. Oak Creek is a Verde River tributary that carves a spectacularly beautiful gorge, Oak Creek Canyon, from Flagstaff down to Sedona, and continues on past Cornville to its confluence with the Verde south of Cottonwood. It is one of the few streams in the high desert of northern Arizona that runs all year. The creek bend that makes our valley verdant and fertile 
and the stagecoach from Flagstaff to Prescott that passed nearby attracted the first settlers of Hidden Valley in the 1870s. The previous residents, Yavapai and Apache's peoples, had been forcibly relocated after a cruel march to the San Carlos Reservation in eastern Arizona. It was a hard life for those early settlers and a lonely one, I imagine. The valley is surrounded by steep hills, canyon walls, really. Getting in and out of there wouldn't have been easy. It still isn't. It was a life of ceaseless toil and hardship. The place is pretty far north and at a high elevation, so it frequently suffers late freezes, a regularly recurring catastrophe for crops and the families and livestock that depended on them. Families worked this valley until the 1950s when they began breaking up property and selling off parcels. One last ranching couple remained, a World War II veteran from Kansas, and his wife until they died, he in his late 60s and she in the early 70s. When Cindy saw our property with its single, small, three-bedroom cabin, it was lovely and green. But most of the rest of the valley had been neglected, leaving it uncultivated, dusty, and rocky. The settlers had dug an irrigation system across the entire valley that remained in operation, having been grandfathered in to recently passed laws that forbid the diversion of scarce water resources. There were trees here then, and we would plant many more. Many cottonwoods grace the property. They're fast growers, and we have fruit orchards, apple, peach, plum, and cherry trees. The cottonwoods whisper in the wind, and the fruit trees in blossom are a mesmerizing sight. But it's the slow-growing sycamores, so resilient in harsh climates, that give the place its majesty. They are just magnificent. The courtyard of the old palace in Istanbul, the sultan's residence from the 15th century to the 19th, is lined by immense sycamores, some of which are believed to be 500 years old. They are as splendid as the palace they guard. We have a sycamore standing near the north bend of the creek that's close to 200 years old. With its massive trunk, great height, and sprawling limbs. It commands your attention, and the birds love it. Cindy said she knew instantly we would love the place. She made an offer for it that day. That was in 1983. The property was about a quarter of the size that it is today. We only had the one little cabin then. We soon built a guest cottage across an irrigation ditch from our house. In the 1990s, we bought the adjacent property to house our kids as they got older, and we added a deck to it, where I used to grill our meals. Our friends, the Harpers, have a home next to us. Not long after, we bought two small places near the south bend of the creek as guest houses. We built a new main house in 2010 to replace the original cabin, and we just finished building a new place for our kids, who are starting families of their own now. But the improvements we made that matter most to me are not architectural, but natural. We planted more cottonwoods and fruit trees, mimosas and mulberry bushes for the birds, flowers of all kinds, with rose vines clinging to the fences. We established rolling lawns of rich green grass, shaded by tree canopies and shimmering in the light filtered through the foliage. We dug ponds and stocked them with fish. It was called Hidden Valley Ranch before we owned it. Now it's practically invisible. From the tops of the surrounding hills, you can barely make out the structures and roads below. It's just a mass of green, wooded and lush, 
with a symphony of birdsong in the air and the buzz of cicadas in summer. So many birds make their home here, 68 different species the Audubon Society estimates, from hummingbirds darting around the mimosas to a pair of black hawks of protected species that return each spring to a nest in a sycamore. They teach their fledgling to fly and hunt, taking advantage of the fish in the creek and the trust that has come to exist between them and us before flying back to Mexico for the winter. Several years ago, we bought land on the other side of the creek, the ghost ranch, as we call it, from the heirs of the self-sufficient old couple who had been the last to ranch here. We're turning it into a wildlife sanctuary to attract even more birds, planting only what is native to the area, cactus and desert willow. When we're finished, the Audubon Society will designate it a special birding area, and the thought of that pleases me very much. There are Indian caves in the hills and waterfalls past the creek pens and all kinds of wildlife. Deer, javelina, coyote, fox and skunk, and rattlesnakes. We had a cougar one summer, but they're transient animals and he moved on after he had culled the deer population. We spent all the time we could here. We celebrated holidays and birthdays. We swam in the creek, fished the ponds, hiked the hills, and barbecued. The place always teemed with kids, our own and the Harpers and their friends. Until the mid-2000s, when I started spending the 4th of July with the troops in Afghanistan and Iraq, we always celebrated the holiday here with dozens of friends we invited for all manners of recreation, wiffle ball games, forced marches up the hills to an Indian cave, swimming at the falls, lively dinners along the bank of the creek. We came here after elections to celebrate victories and for consolation after losses. The prescription for both included grilled ribs and a slowly sipped vodka on ice. The McCain Institute convenes a weekend forum every spring at a resort in Sedona, attended by prominent figures in government, business, education, and the military. Foreign and defense ministers and even a few heads of government have come. We host a dinner on Saturday night for the attendees. It's especially beautiful here in the spring, and the property has made such an impression on our guests, the word of Hidden Valley's charms has spread worldwide. Carlos Slim, the billionaire from Mexico City, one of the world's wealthiest men, told me he thought it was one of the nicest places he had ever been. I receive regular solicitations from senior officials of foreign governments. I hear you have a beautiful place near Sedona. I'd love to see it someday. Yes, I loved it when I first saw it and had a vision of what it might become. And now we're nearly there, and I love it all the more. I lived so much of my life on the move, compensated in other ways for the hometown I was denied. I had no connection to one place, no safe harbor where I could rest carelessly. Landscapes and communities pass too quickly to form lasting attachments of shared history that calm you when old age finally confounds your restlessness. I was almost 45 when I moved to Arizona. In the nearly four decades that have passed since, Arizona has enchanted and claimed me. Near the end of his life, Barry Goldwater, a great outdoorsman, tried to describe his affection for the state. Arizona is 113,400 square miles of heaven that God cut out. Then he paused to choke back tears before managing to add, I love it so much. 
I've experienced every scene of spectacular natural beauty this magnificent state possesses. I've hiked Canyon de Chez and the Grand Canyon rim to rim. I've rafted down the Colorado and houseboated on Lake Powell. I've walked the trails in Saguaro National Park, been struck mute by the landscape of Monument Valley, and spent countless hours happily following hidden paths in wilderness areas. I've driven through the desert in the spring after a wet winter and gasped at the profusion of color, the mesmerizing beauty of desert wildflowers and sudden bloom. I love it so much, and I'm so grateful for the privilege of representing the state and its people in the United States Senate. I've been to just about every community that Arizonans carved from the wilderness and made thrive, places that never stopped growing and places that were abandoned to history when opportunities were exhausted, places that rose and declined were reimagined and made to prosper again by the hardworking, self-starting dreamers Arizona attracts in such great numbers. I've been astonished by the resourcefulness of generations of Arizonans in Yuma and Page, Jerome, Kingman, Bisbee, and Flagstaff, who struggled, achieved, lost, and struggled again to build from their freedom and opportunities strong, prospering, decent communities in the challenging and beautiful place that had won their hearts. We will change as all places do. More people will come, as I once came, to make a new home or find the only home they ever really have in towns and cities and rural communities that will be better for their presence. Some will come from other states and some will come from other countries. They will face the challenges of their time and place. They'll suffer setbacks and they will stick with it and prevail. And years from now, their stories, character, and accomplishments will inspire other lucky newcomers, as I was once inspired, who came to live in beauty and make the most of their lives. I won't see it, but I wish I could. I don't know how much longer I'll be here. Maybe I'll have another five years. Maybe with the advances on oncology, they'll find new treatments for my cancer that will extend my life. Maybe I'll be gone before you hear this. My predicament is, well, rather unpredictable. But I'm prepared for either contingency, or at least I'm getting prepared. I have some things I'd like to take care of first, some work that needs finishing, and some people I need to see. And I want to talk to my fellow Americans a little more, if I may. My fellow Americans, no association ever mattered more to me. We're not always right. We're impetuous and impatient and rush into things without knowing what we're really doing. We argue over little differences endlessly and exaggerate them into lasting breaches. We can be selfish and quick sometimes to shift the blame for our mistakes to others, but our country tis of thee. What great good we've done in the world, so much more good than harm. We served ourselves, of course, but we helped make others free, safe, and prosperous because we weren't threatened by other people's liberty and success. We need each other. We need friends in the world, and they need us. The bell tolls for us, my friends. Humanity counts on us, and we ought to take measured pride in that. We have not been an island. We were involved in mankind. Before I leave, I'd like to see our politics begin to return to the purposes and practices that distinguish our history from the history of other nations. I'd like to see us recover our sense that we are more alike than different. We're citizens of a republic made of shared ideals, 
forged in a new world to replace the tribal enmities that tormented the old one. Even in times of political turmoil such as these, we share that awesome heritage and the responsibility to embrace it. Whether we think each other right or wrong in our views on the issues of the day, we owe each other our respect as long as our character merits respect and as long as we share for all our differences, for all the rancorous debates that enliven and sometimes demean our politics, a mutual devotion to the ideals our nation was conceived to uphold, that all are created equal and liberty and equal justice are the natural rights of all. Those rights inhabit the human heart, and from there, though they may be assailed, they can never be wrenched. I want to urge Americans for as long as I can to remember that this shared devotion to human rights is our truest heritage and our most important loyalty. Then I'd like to go back to our valley and see the creek run after the rain and hear the cottonwoods whisper in the wind. I want to smell the rose-scented breeze and feel the sun on my shoulders. I want to watch the hawks hunt from the sycamore and then take my leave, bound for a place near my old friend Chuck Larson in the cemetery on the Severn, back where it began. The world is a fine place and worth the fighting for, and I hate very much to leave it, spoke my hero Robert Jordan and for whom the bell tolls. And I do too. I hate to leave it, but I don't have a complaint. Not one. It's been quite a ride. I've known great passions, seen amazing wonders, fought in a war, and helped make a peace. I've lived very well, and I've been deprived of all comforts. I've been as lonely as a person can be, and I've enjoyed the company of heroes. I've suffered the deepest despair and experienced the highest exultation. I made a small place for myself in the story of America and the history of my times. I leave behind a loving wife who is devoted to protecting the world's most vulnerable and seven great kids who grew up to be fine men and women. I wish I had spent more time in their company, but I know they will go on to make their time count and be of useful service to the beliefs we share and to their fellow human beings. Their love for me and mine for them is the last strength I have. What an ingrate I would be to curse the fate that concludes the blessed life I've led. I prefer to give thanks for those blessings and my love to the people who blessed me with theirs. The bell tolls for me. I knew it would, so I tried as best I could to stay a part of the main. I hope those who mourn my passing, and even those who don't, will celebrate, as I celebrate a happy life lived in imperfect service to a country made of ideals whose continued success is the hope of the world. And I wish all of you great adventures, good company, and lives as lucky as mine. <laughs>